Welcome back to the Art of Travel podcast. Today I'm presenting a conversation with Na Chain Kua Reindorf, who is a mixed media artist and myth maker born in Ghana and based in New York. Na works with large scale tapestries and immersive installations that nods to the colorful history of West African textiles, focusing largely on the visual culture surrounding masquerades and ceremonial costumes. I discovered Na's work on social media where her mastery and eye for composition, shapes, and design is evident in her ever-evolving Instagram page. In this conversation, I speak to Na about her creative process and the cultural themes found in her work, as well as the gripe of creating in an Instagram feedback loop. Here's Na on the line. So Na, thank you so much for joining me today here on the Art of Travel podcast. First things first, I always like to ask, where in the world are you right now? I am currently upstate New York in a city called Binghamton, about three and a half hours away from the city. And what are you doing in Binghamton? I have my studio here, my studio practice. So I'm currently working on a remote residency for... This exhibition that is going to go up in a museum in Bordeaux in February. And I'm pretty much racing against the clock to get it done before the end of the year so that I can, there's enough time for FedEx to ship it to them so that they can install it. <laughs> oh man, how many pieces will be in this exhibit? So they are loading one piece that, uh, it's more like a set of three pieces that I had. Uh, in the show last year, even though it's it's part of like an installation, they're actually three pieces sort of working together. And I'm making another um, installation type piece, which is made up of 12, 13 pieces that are sort of assemb- assembled together and uh, will be functioning as one piece in the end. But if you're talking about the individual pieces, they're about 12 or 13. And has quarantine been a sort of blessing for you in this case that there's less distractions to finish your exhibition or how have you found this time as an artist? I kind of feel guilty saying this because it has been such an awful, awful year for a lot of people. But in terms of, you're right, in terms of being productive, my productivity has shot through the roof. I'm surprised about how much work I've been able to get done. And I think it's probably because I have no distractions and this really no reason for me to be out there and I live above my studio I literally live above my studio so it's like it's a bit dangerous because you don't really know the different you know you cannot sort of demarcate your life from your work but I see my I see my studio every day and I'm like okay I need to get something done what am I doing today and um, I just sort of got a lot that I had been putting off to the side done which uh, I'm really happy about which sort of like has helped me get things done more 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 so than I would have anticipated, I think, at the beginning of the year. And so have you been sort of working and living remote for a couple of years now? Where were you before Binghamton? I guess, I don't know. I was in grad school in Ithaca, so it's not that much of a, a jump because Ithaca is about an hour away. Um, I was getting my MFA at Cornell. And um, I met a, a gallery director who has a, a small gallery here. It's a pretty has a pretty international like roster. Um, very focused on um, photorealistic paintings, but they were expanding the artists that they were um, representing. And he had seen my work. 
from the work that I've been making when I was in grad school. And we sort of were hoping that maybe we could work together in the future. This is while I was still, you know, in grad school. He decided to represent me um, as an artist. So I am actually from Ghana, but I'm here on an artist visa. So I'm sort of connected through this gallery, connected to the gallery, rather. They represent me. Um, and um, I also have my partner here. So we sort of it all kind of worked out. That's great. And so you grew up in Ghana. When did you move to the U.S.? So it's been about 10 years now that I've been in the U.S. And I know we spoke about this in an earlier conversation that you sort of feel like you are able to culturally code switch between two very different cultures. Most of your academic career has taken place here in the U.S. And what are sort of what is it like to live between these very different two cultures? It's really been interesting in the sense in the really in the beginning, you know, we were warned about people who who are sort of drop into this new culture and are just like, what the hell is going on? Like, I need to get used to a lot of stuff. And but after the first year, um, things sort of settle down, you sort of get used to it. And then you go back home and you're like, wait, <laughs> all these things that worked in this place don't really work in that place. And then you start getting, you know, this weird fatigue because it's like you get frustrated that things are not working the way you're used to comparing one place to another. Um, and after that, you sort of get used to it and you just sort of accept the fact that, you know, these are two very different places. Um, in Ghana, um, it's a common saying that we respect time when it, it, it's like really important. But like if you invite somebody to a party at 4 p.m., nobody is going to arrive at 4. People are going to arrive at like 6. <laughs> Um, so, you know, there's this sort of way of, of living where things are like, why are you so stressed out? Why are you trying to get everything done now? Like, relax, relax, like chill out. Everything's going to work out. Just like, don't be so freaked out that things are not working the way you're expecting them to type of thing. It's very interesting sort of being in America where it's like, okay, this meeting starts at 10 and it's 10 o'clock and you should be here. You should be ready. You know, that type of thing. <laughs> And um, obviously, I got used to it pretty quickly. That was I never really had a problem with that, but it was just sort of really interesting. That was just one really good example of like the way things are different. Obviously, the weather is different and, you know, the accents are different and, you know, people trying to figure out what you're trying to say, which was very annoying in the beginning. You know, being able to pronounce your name was a big thing because I have, a, I guess, not necessarily a complicated name, but... It's it's a doozy for a lot of people in America. So, you know, I typically just like stuck to my nickname, which I go by anyway. So that was not a big deal. When you sort of make concessions based on how much you're willing to, if it's something you want to get into. <laughs> I'm so curious to know, were there any shocking social codes that you encountered when you first moved to the U.S.? Um, so this is a weird one, but personal space and like, I would say unnecessary touching <laughs> Because I think back home, like when we are friends, you're very like huggy, holding hands, like standing close to each other kind of thing. And I remember during our orientation, they mentioned like Americans are like, yeah, this is like my space and you don't come within this amount of like feet or whatever close to me unless I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it type thing. And it's like, oh, you know, putting your hand on somebody's shoulder can be uncomfortable in certain situations and stuff like that. It was just like a bit jarring. I was like, oh, okay, this is like, not that I, I wouldn't say like I'm necessarily like a touchy feely person, but like I'm really huggy with my friends and stuff like that, right? But I think maybe it was more so for 
members of the opposite sex was I think it was more like okay it's for the guys coming into America like speaking to like you know coming friends with girls and stuff it's like you don't just like you know hold someone's hand or and it's very common it's like it's, it's like a you know display of like affection not necessarily like intimacy in like the sexual way more like a sort of a friendship type of way but you know yeah. that could be misconstrued obviously depending on the context which obviously understandable but that's really interesting so um I wanted to talk a little bit about your your art. Was there a very clear moment that made you realize you wanted to become an artist? I don't think there was like a like a pivotal moment per se. I think it was just like a culmination of a lot of different little moments that built up to this like decision. So I grew up with parents who adore the arts. They sort of collected local Ghanaian artists throughout my childhood so our our home is pretty much like a gallery like our walls are literally covered in like paintings and all these like trinkets and things they've collected because they traveled a lot also so they used to collect stuff from wherever they traveled and then sort of had it around the house and my mother's sister now currently runs a gallery in Ghana but at the time she was a an art dealer and and she lived in England and every time we got the chance to visit her and my cousins uh, she'd always take us to like museums and galleries that was like our outing and I loved love love doing that loved I really enjoyed it and just you know being surrounded by art at home like growing up with paintings and art everywhere i think i just sort of got used to this idea that this was like a common thing and my friends would come over and say uh this is this is different <laughs> you know like i it didn't i didn't realize that it wasn't something that happened everywhere i just sort of felt like i had a part of this artist with me like i was sort of in the presence of the artist in in a, in a weird way and i kind of liked the idea of being able to make something and have somebody else be able to enjoy it as like a part of you, like a a separate but physical part of, of you in a space where somebody else can enjoy it and sort of see your vision or see things the way you're seeing them or whatever. And I kind of liked that idea a lot. And I thought, and I'd always sort of really been interested in the arts and drawing and designing like clothes for my friends and stuff and my my grandmother ha- uh, was a seamstress um when she was much younger but she also um had a sewing machine so I used to sort of get her to help me make stuff so it was like I love the idea of being able to make something yourself for yourself and I, I love that you mentioned that you started out making clothes with your for your friends and working with textiles because I know you mentioned that textiles plays a huge part of your work and I wanted to understand where did this love for textiles come from? My dad has this trunk at the edge at the end of his him, him and my mother's bed where he keeps his fabric his textiles basically so the they're called kente cloths they are these like uh, woven cloths that are woven in strips and sewn to, uh, sewn attached to each other and sewn together to sort of make a larger cloth. And the men, the women have like a tailor or a seamstress make them into an outfit, but the men just buy the cloth as is and then sort of wrap it around their bodies, like kind of similar to the way the Greek toga is worn. They pretty, they kind of can span a room how big they are, but they sort of end up being wrapped around the, the form. And I, you know, distinctly remember him always asking me every Sunday to like help him fold the cloth. And we had this like particular ritual, you know, we feast. 
your left hand comes to the right and then the right to the left and then we walk towards each other to fold it kind of like how people fold bed sheets but like a much bigger <laughs> and I was like really you know in hindsight one of obviously much later I just realized how sort of pivotal and in 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 fascinating that moment was in the sense that this is like a ritual of like a man folding his cloth that he wears to to special occasions but then there's a sort of interesting relationship between the man and the fabric and I was thinking yeah who keeps their 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 cloths like it, you know it's so precious he has them wrapped in like um these sheets so they don't get dusty or whatever cuz it gets pretty dusty back home and just like protects them and i just sort of was thinking about how so much care and love and the end and uh respect was given to this like so-called like commonplace material you know i can even say maybe africans in general are really particular about like their appearance and how they 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 present themselves in the public eye and um obviously dress has so much to do with that because you're wearing something to go out and people sort of notice what you're wearing and treat you a certain way depending on what, what you're wearing. So of course if you want to be treated a certain way, you're going to make an effort to look a certain way. Yeah, I'm so um curious. Is cloth used as a communication tool beyond dress code? Beyond the yes, because some of the cloths actually have iconography woven into them and printed onto them like identifiable iconography that people can sort of see and um like in the airwear um ethnic group which is where my mother is from they have these different anime they they also make a kente cloth but theirs is slightly different the colorways are a bit muted a bit darker but they have these uh, animals that they weave like the shapes of these animals they weave into the cloth and it's like each animal means something um sort of speaks to a certain like virtue or character and so people sort of like wear these things and it's the idea that this these this sort of character is imbued in the person or they're sort of trying to say that they are like this thing that they're wearing which i think is a little bit a step further than just like wearing something and having people like perceive you in a certain way i love that so much and that's really powerful too the associate associations between the symbols colors and being able to identify where someone is based on that because i feel like here in the west the only identifiers we really we really have with clothing are with with luxury labels or any type of label for that matter yeah and it sounds like in Ghana there's it's just so much more nuance it's deeper it's about colors it's about as you mentioned iconography so it seems like there's a lot of storytelling incorporated into the cloth there there is a lot of storytelling and and this is what is so exciting is that you know the the men who sort of weave these cloths are telling a story but then the people who sort of make that i mean buy them and wear them can use them in a different sort of iteration to present this idea in a different way or sort of combine two things say something else so like using the language like taking two words putting them together and making a sentence type of thing but with cloth and this sort of storytelling is is pretty it's pretty common in the sense that we we have a lot of like sayings and wise sayings and proverbs and stuff like that because that's sort of how um stories are told and and lessons are learned you can use like something in nature like the crab to describe 
a strong individual, like or somebody with a shell or something, or perhaps sort of being protected, or fish, fish in 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 a pond being like unassuming because they have no idea what's going on. Or there's like a there's like a, an image with a crocodile around the pond. Um, it's like the crocodile is obviously the a stronger character in 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 the narrative, and the fish are the weaker characters. So you sort of start seeing these um, connections, and you know if you understand. Sometimes it's a bit vague, but if you understand how the, you know, the, the, I guess the virtues associated with these animals, you can sort of tell what, what the person is trying to say or what like the creator is trying to say. Yeah, that's super fascinating. Are these the sort of themes that you like to explore in your own practice? Yes, I am. Basically, I like this idea so much that I am trying to create my own versions of these things, like things that a little bit more contemporary and um, that are sort of more identifiable in this time and, and, and space and see if I can sort of be inspired by and use like this a similar language to create like this sort of alternative way of speaking. Um, and so that's sort of what I've been working on recently. I also sort of would like to mention that a lot of the... Uh, cultural practices and sort of textile culture in, in Ghana very is, is, you know, it's definitely not dead, like very, very um, alive and vibrant. And um, a lot of people sort of know about it and it's sort of all over the world. But what I kept stumbling upon in all of my research was that a lot of these um, sort of practices were male dominated. And so part of what I am interested in doing is using my work to insert myself a woman into the narrative. And so I learned a bit about how to weave. I learned, um, I did a, I got very interested in masquerading, which in general has been, as I mentioned, mainly a male dominated field and have been uh, working on sort of creating a sort of secret society masquerade that is uh, for women and so this is like me, it's like a little tongue-in-cheek way of learning from what has been done before and saying, hey, this is a different way of looking at it. Uh, how about, and not to say that what is done before is necessarily bad or, you know, or terrible or whatever, but it's just let's, let, this is just me sort of like presenting a new way of seeing or like a new way of thinking about these things. And I love this concept of the masquerade. Is this masquerade all female? Yes, the idea is that it's it's it was uh, created for women, and um, I kind of modeled it after myself in the sense that I used things that I wish, like the sort of character characters and behaviors and sort of virtues that I wish that I had. I had the courage to be able to like things I wish I had the courage to do without like the fear of being judged or the repercussions of whatever. And um, so like. Um, it, it's sort of at the very basis is about you know things that women in general are do that are frowned upon and my interest is in turning these things around to make them empowering in a way um, and in in the form of like a masqueraded dress for example so that you know the idea is that a woman could wear this dress and be inspired to do something she she wished she could do but probably wouldn't be able to do as herself but she could do with this masquerade costume on because people didn't know it was her and so there's this like duality of 
of course, it's such a shame that you would have to sort of try completely transform yourself into somebody unrecognizable to do something you want to do. This idea of being perceived versus perceiving other people and, and, and how people behave in a public sphere. and and Yeah, uninhibited desire. That's really interesting. I know from our earlier chat, too, we were speaking a little bit about how in Ghana, you are a representative of your community as well. It's not just you're an individual, you represent your family, you represent your neighborhood. I would love for you to uh, speak more on that. So, for example... If we were to go out somewhere in Ghana and somebody, we were at an event or something and somebody is like, oh, what's your name? Like, it's not like a simple, innocuous question of what is your name? They're actually trying to figure out who you are and who you're related to. (laughs) So that's like how, I don't know, insidious seems like a very heavy loaded word, but that's how insidious it is, is that people want to know who you're related to or who you're parents are or who your grandparents are type of thing because that way they're able to place you on the social ladder like on the on that sort of like scale of like how important is this person to me to me and would I would I need anything from them how should I treat them now versus you know and this is like this varies obviously but definitely your name carries a lot in Ghana and uh and so if that's like a great way to sort of like understand how things can work in a social sphere where you are coming from a, uh, I don't know, prestigious family or a well-known family or a family that has a lot of money or has done a lot for society is like a big deal. And you get to, you, you get to move through the space with ease more so than somebody who didn't necessarily come from this background. Like you, there's a little bit of, you know, corruption, of course, like you can get, you can pay away out of stuff if you're, if you, if you have the money to, and stuff like that. Or you can just like get through spaces that are, you know, would mostly be more difficult to with that, with a, with a certain ease. Is this somehow connected to masquerades being a very popular or celebrated form of, of social activity? Yeah. I mean, the, is this, the history of masquerading in Ghana has been connected to colonial times where Ghanaian, like the locals would dress up as caricatures of the colonists and basically make fun of them. And it was sort of like a tongue-in-cheek, you know, way of enjoying the holiday in, in, in their own way because, you know, this was, this usually happened towards like between Christmas and the beginning of the new year. You know, as I mentioned, I do a lot of research and stuff, but I've also been reading a lot about, so a lot of the, the masquerading in Ghana involves a lot of children um, and they get to sort of dress up and sort of ex- enjoy themselves and stuff. And there's this like different level of play involved where they get to do things that are not necessarily considered like a good thing. They get to be naughty and cheeky and stuff, but it's because they're in the costume. They're like, ah, it's all part of the thing, you know? So you should let, let things go, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I thought it was really fascinating because I never, you know, thought about it from like a child's perspective, but then there's this sort of elevated level of play and, and, a willingness to let things go, let let like tradition and, and customs lie for a period of time while this uh while you know the child is in a costume. And I think obviously that extends to adults and, and in the sense that somebody wearing a costume is more likely to get away with something because 
part of it is like, oh, it's a performance. Oh, it's and so there's this sort of ease, I think, in moving through a space and uh, not and the obvious, obviously, like the idea of being um, in disguise, where you know nobody knows who you are. So there's also this like nonchalance attached to your behavior, where it's like I can get I get to do what I want without having to deal with all these other extra burdens upon me as like an individual in the society. And I think it's so fascinating and it's basically what I'm trying to unpack. That actually leads me to my next question, which is what themes do you like to explore in your practice? You know, obviously the politics of dress and like identity and its connection to dress, but also like in general textile culture. I think I, I'm really interested in ways that I can all the ways that we've used textiles and, and cloth in, in Ghana in particular, and I guess in West Africa as a whole, to like do things, just to be in like a social sphere or a political sphere, like how it's been used historically. And I'm sort of mining this information and, 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 and seeing how I can use these, these um, approaches to help me with my own practice. And in one of our earlier chats, we spoke about practicing multiple disciplines and exploring one line of thought and looking at it in different angles. I love this approach on the different ways you can explore one idea. Why was it important for you to break out of one specific medium? Well, I think it came from the history of materials in general. And I'm going to answer this in a roundabout way, but I think it's going to make sense in the end. Um, I, when I first came to America and I was making work and I was sort of explaining my work to people, it was always interesting to hear people's interpretations of the works from their perspective. It was always that they were reading the works with their knowledge of the materials I'd made in the back of their minds. Even though when I was making the work, I was making the work from my knowledge of material in the back of my mind. So we were coming at it from two very different uh, perspectives. But in the end, there are, you know, what I was intending may or may not have been what they were perceived. But I sort of thought it was really interesting that, you know, being in completely different places, obviously sort of colors the way you view and understand things you see, like, I guess, with art and stuff like that. And um, I loved that a lot. But I also was, in terms of like medium, different using different mediums, I felt like there were certain things that just worked like think I'm, I'm, I'm like the ideas I'm interested in. I don't think, yeah, it's not sufficient. I think for me to use just one uh, medium to, to, to sort of like express this work. I think it's one of those things where I'm, I can come at it from different perspectives and then how, and it also sort of forces me to be uncomfortable because I have to think outside of the box all the time and figure out what is the best way for me to do this. And it's, a lot of the time, it's usually from it's usually something that I'm not familiar with, and so it's like there's there's an element of sort of like learning about this thing and trying to figure out how I could incorporate it into my practice. But also, the fact that I am not familiar with these like these me- mediums, for example, means that I have a different way of approaching it than maybe the most traditional way of doing it, and so that sort of means that the end result is a little bit different or a little bit unexpected, and I kind of like that. Because you, you sort of end up doing things in a different way. You, you find you end up at the same answer, but I think it's like a different path. And, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And I love that you can also sort of 
experience a glimpse into your thought process on your artist Instagram because you'll take like one color and you'll I I can see it unfold a little bit when you'll take like this orange uh, textile or fiber and then you see how you start exploring and trying to see this this one material in different ways it's um a lot of trial and error a lot of like putting and sometimes it can be as easy as just like I don't know, I was working on one thing, I was working on another thing, completely unrelated things, and I just happened to put them next to each other, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute, this looks cool, I can expand upon this, and so it can be really simple as just like juxtaposition of like physical objects, Um, and then, and sometimes, you know, things come to me in a thought, or like in the middle of the night or something, I'm like, oh, maybe I should try this, or whatever, Um, but it's usually just like work, uh, I I realize um, that a lot of the things that I end up working on are because I actually started physically working with like touching things, moving things around, trying things. Like there's a lot that happens in my head, but to be able to physically do it is a completely different story. (laughs) Yeah. And when you switch between different mediums, like paint versus textiles versus sculpture, are you exploring different themes? Like for example, I love your mythological series is that a sort of different story you're trying to share than when you're working with with fabrics interestingly enough no I think it's all falls under the same um kind of umbrella but it's just like a different way of in my mind at least it's a different way of looking at it like the paintings for example where paintings of these like seven mythological figures who are the basis of this masquerade that I mentioned earlier the physical, like the sculptural works are sort of inspiration from the masquerade community as well. So there's still like a, a like a through line that, but on first glance, it just seems like, you know, very distinct paths of like running parallel. But, you know, yeah. I think over time it becomes full circle. So I'm using each character as the inspiration and then I'm, you know, using the meat like photography and, and performance eventually and like the sculpture and like the paintings and all of that to support this character that I, I have created. So in the end it's like the story is the is kind of like the the main thing and then the work is 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 being made to support that story. Yeah, it's like each each medium represents a different character in the same story. So let's talk about art and Instagram. Over the last few years, the art community has exploded and has really embraced social media, which makes sense for an app that is focused on visuals. Is building an Instagram presence important for you as an artist? And I struggle with this question because I think yes, definitely, because there's this sort of, I think social media has definitely like leveled the playing field in terms of exposure. Artists being able to sort of represent themselves and broker their like relationships across online uh, with people sort of being able to see what they are doing online and, and having conversations with people that the artists are interested in working with etc but there's also for for me a lot of like the work I do is is heavily time consuming and ma- like very manual and takes such a long time to complete and sometimes I feel like Oh, am I not post? I'm not posting enough. Like, oh, I need people to see what I'm doing, kind of thing. And it's just like puts this unnecessary pressure on me because I'm thinking, uh, you know, like you see all these like 
the advice online about to be a, you know to be a, to succeed as an artist on 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 social media is that you need to be engaging and answer people's questions and post all the time and this and that and that and that and sometimes you just get overwhelmed because it's like I am just trying to finish this work. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure too there is this added dimension of pressure where obviously certain graphic works perform very well on Instagram but what if you have something that might be a little bit more esoteric and might not be the most instagrammable content i'm sure that does that affect the way that you perceive the work exactly i mean there's a lot of things like scale that are are kind of misconstrued online people don't really understand how maybe big or small something is because from a photo because everything is just like within like the i don't know 57 or the square format type of thing, but also just like I think a lot I work a lot with textures and 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 materials and stuff like that, where it's beneficial to actually see it in person because it changes the way you actually like the way you understand the work and how how you sort of un- understand the way the the artist has made the work as well. So in that sense, there's obviously like limitations and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those are things I I I definitely, you know, think that social media has broadened the access to my work beyond like I don't know, my website or having somebody refer me to I don't know, a, a gallerist or a museum or something like that. But it's also comes with its own like problems of like what how much are you willing to put in, I guess, to sort of keep up. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine that's really tricky and um i wanted to talk a little bit about your fashion account because you have one of the most beautiful curated fashion instagram accounts and i think that would be an understatement because it incorporates architecture design and it really is like a artistic pantone part of it was that being in i think grad school and having to have like critiques every week and having, you know, constant um, opinions about your work run through all the time, you just sort of get used to, like, hearing what people are interested in, uh, where they want your work to go, versus where you think you should take the work. It's it's difficult, because, of course, you want to be, you know, it's it's like, it can get very obsessive where you, you care about what people think about you. Like this app is basically made for, for you to sort of care. So, and it's a, it's a high and you want to chase the high. Right. And so it's, it's, it's a challenge sort of trying to fight against, you know, being sort of concerned with these things and, and sort of trying to focus on like what it is that you are interested in doing. Um, but I've always like obsessed with, arranging things by color and like sort of transitioning i mean when we were kids my sister and i would get like a tub of skittles and i would pour the skittles on the bed and arrange them by like the reds the purples the greens the yellows and then i'll eat like the greens and yellows and oranges first <laughs> and then i'll eat the red and because they were the better ones and i also sort of like grew up with like legos and stuff and i always used to do this i always had to put all the colors i don't know i just like seeing colors that are similar to each other next to each other and yeah. sort of organized and stuff like that. Um, and I'd always wanted to do this, but I never really thought of how, cause I sort of, I think like the ultimate goal for me is like to have everything on my page be like made by me. So like, instead of me posting other people's art, I'll be posting my own. And I'm thinking that is going to take a really long time for me to sort of get this range of work 
done. But it really did start, I mean, this particular um, trajectory started during um, the quarantine time where we weren't able to go out. And I was thinking, oh, it would be great to still be able to post stuff. And so I just ended up going through my phone because I, 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 I take a lot of trips. I love going to museums and galleries and, and, and like design um, showrooms and stuff like that mm-hmm. because I just love seeing what other people are doing and seeing how I could be, you know, inspired by the works and materials that other people are using. So I take a lot of, I have a lot of pictures on my phone. I think that's where most of like the space on my phone has just gone to like photos of stuff. And so I had just, I realized that I had this huge archive of photographs of like art and, and like from places I've been and art fairs I've been to and galleries and museums and stuff. And I distinctly remember I had this like blue top and then I was like, I have, I'm, I've taken a picture of art that looks like this color. And I said, and then it happened again because I, I remember things really well visually. So I was just like looking at my wardrobe and thinking, oh my God, like this Carmen Herrera painting looks like these pants that I got. I have to try and see if I can sort of juxtapose them together. And then I started seeing a little, a little bit more and it just sort of took off from there. I love that. And I really like too, because I'm also a purist, that every single image that you share is something that you have witnessed, seen, touched in, re- in person. Like everything has been shot through your perspective. I was always sort of like uncomfortable with the idea of, I don't know, posting somebody else's work. And I do post other people's art. I understand that. But I think that's because it was in the public space. <laughs> you know, photographs were allowed and, you know, it's it's from my own archive rather than, you know, I don't know, maybe getting it from Pinterest. It's, it's kind of like a, I don't know whether you're familiar with this. There was this game that was at, like this on like an app that was about arranging colors um by like from the shade from one shade of I don't know green into red and I enjoyed it so much and I really do feel like this is kind of like a my version of playing a game because I'm like oh okay like how can I okay what can I move here I can move this here I can rearrange this and blah 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 so I have like a a, my I have an album a pre-posting album where I sort of rearrange things so I know how my you know, I ha- I know what my page is going to look like in a month and a half already, but it's just like, okay, I actually have to like put this outfit on and take a picture. <laughs> so then it helps me because it sort of takes me, I don't have to think about it for a while. I hate saying this, but I've had to, to tell that maybe like a brand sends me a collection of stuff. I'm like, um, I, and, and maybe some brands are like very particular about when they want you to post, like, oh, we want you to post within two weeks of receipt. When I see stuff like that, I'm like, oh, okay, this is going to be difficult because know that this color is not going to show up for like another four weeks. Sent, I've actually, I did, I emailed one of the representatives back and I'm like, this is the situation. Like, are you okay with waiting for, you know, the two weeks to pass so that I'm posting within the two weeks of receipt at when you send it to like two weeks later, or, you know, we can do this another time type of thing. And she was like, yeah, I'll wait two weeks and then I'll send it to you. (laughs) And so that was pretty cool on her part. But for the most part, it's just like, um, I try to explain, you know, sometimes it's not because I don't want to post your thing. It's just that I don't have anything that it matches, you know? So I, I try as much as I can to like, to get stuff featured wherever I can. And surprisingly, this is 
this is now the time where I've actually learned how to say no to things. I've never, I'm always very uncomfortable saying no to people. So I'm always like, okay, I, I'm sure I can figure something out type of thing. And then it gets to a point where you're overwhelmed because you've said yes so many times that your future self is suffering. So it's like, you know, it's been a learning curve, but also really exciting just to sort of see how how far I can take this. And I feel like it's also kind of something I can do for a long time. It, it, it seems like the possibilities are endless in a sense because you can just keep transitioning color like forever. <laughs> yeah, but it's something that I I, 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 I I definitely absolutely enjoy doing it, but it's also not like a priority. It's not something that I'm like, I have to do this, I have to do this. Um, so I try to take it easy and not take it too seriously, you know. And so one of the last few questions I'd like to ask you is, in what ways does travel influence your work? I love, like, when I go to a new place or a different, like a different country, for example, I always love to go into, like, the markets or their art stores and stuff like that. Because I'm always interested in seeing what, what is in and, like, what the artists in this area are, like, buying and what they're using and stuff like that. Um, when I was in grad school, our, our program had this trip that we took every year. And one time we went to Berlin. One year we went to Berlin and went into this art store. I was like, oh, this is amazing. There are all these, like, resin sheets and all these really interesting things that we never see in art stores in America. And I'm thinking, this is brilliant. So I just bought a few of them, sort of stuffed them in my bag and brought them home. And I sort of found a way to incorporate them into my like my pieces. And I sort of love that I can use travel to sort of expand my practice materially, if that makes sense. And being from a different country myself, I think it's sort of ingrained. Like you just sort of get used to being in another culture so much so that it's more like, ooh, what do I get to explore here type of thing. What is the most visually beautiful place you've visited? You know what? I really, really love Mexico City. I, was, I went there once when I was in grad school. And I, was, I think part, I had this sort of preconceived notion because I think in America, there's this relationship with Mexico. And I was in Mexico City and I was, I was thinking, oh my God, this like part of this city reminds me of back home. Part of it reminds me of Paris. Part of it reminds me of New York. And I was like, this is all in one city. This is crazy. Um, just sort of depending on where you are. Very cosmopolitan. The, the art is amazing. The architecture is amazing. The food is amazing. The people are really friendly. And I just like, I need to go back here. And I just, I, 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 it was just really, I really enjoyed my time there. I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's something I keep thinking about and hoping that I can visit soon when everything, you know, opens up again and you know, it's it's safe to do so again. I, I love Mexico City as well. And I think uh, to your point, it has everything. And it's a very diverse uh, art scene as well, where they have, you know, their modernists, they have their indigenous artists, they have really the full range. And for closing notes, I wanted to ask you, where can we find all of your work and projects? Um, so I pretty much have my website where like ha which basically has um like the most recent works that I've completed which is www.ncreindorf.com you can find me on Instagram uh on I have two pages one is for strictly art stuff which is ncreindorf and then 
uh, my sort of fashion, art, design, architecture page, which is sort of more of like my fun color transition page, which is Chanky R. And so I sort of run those concurrently <laughs> at the same time and try to sort of get content for each of them whenever it's ready, basically. But those are sort of where I am online. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you again for taking the time out to speak to me today. And I'm really looking forward to seeing your exhibition once it's live. Thank you so, so much for having me. Um, as you know, we've mentioned, I've mentioned this before. I'm a huge fan of you and like your work and your vision as well. So I was just really excited that we were able to make this happen. Been great sort of like in, uh, getting to know you and sort of speaking to you about my work. And uh, just, you know, being given this opportunity to talk about my work has been very pleasant. You're a great conversationalist. I don't know if you know this, but... Oh, thank you. It's really my pleasure. Thanks so much to Naw for joining us today on the show. You can find Naw's work on at Chaincare on Instagram. Tune in every Tuesday for a new episode on the Art of Travel podcast. Subscribe to the Art of Travel podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you may stream your favorite podcasts. The Art of Travel is created by Olivia Lopez, produced by Bon Weekender, edited by Jason Stewart, and music composed by Slow Shiver. We'll see you on Tuesday.